Medicare is complicated. Medicare can be confusing. Medicare is no fun to study. Will you know what decisions to make when Medicare time arrives for you? My name is Doug Jones, and I wrote a book to help you figure it all out. Medicare for the Lazy Man. It's on sale at Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. Also, you can download and listen to my podcast, Medicare for the Lazy Man, wherever fine podcasts are given away free of charge. Medicare for the Lazy Man, simplest and easiest guide ever. Get your notepads ready, it's the Medicare for the Lazy Man podcast. The podcast that wants to refund the police. He only goes to Ace Hardware stores that serve popcorn. It's Medicare expert, Doug Jones. Well, hello again, ladies and gentlemen. Guess who? Well, I I suppose my Canadian nephew, Drew McMillan, spoiled the surprise for you. This is Doug Jones, your Medicare expert. And I am so happy to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. What we're going to do today is we're going to enjoy a little bit of Medicare news. Some of it might be entertaining. Some of it might be uh, it, it might be nostalgic. Some of it might bring a tear to your eye. But uh, before we do that, I want to tell you about the easiest way for you to approach Medicare without trepidation. And the easiest way for you to do that is to get a reliable source of Medicare knowledge. You can build that base of knowledge by purchasing and reading my book, Medicare for the Lazy Man 2023. I think after having spent a short time, maybe an hour and a half or so, reading my book, you'll find that you have a, an excellent grasp of the whole Medicare um, structure and what you probably are going to have to do in order to approach Medicare with all the confidence that you should be able to. And if you need additional help, and most people will because they'll need to uh, hire a a licensed insurance agent to purchase a few insurance products that will fill out their Medicare uh, coverage and make it completely impervious to attacks by uh, doctors wielding expensive equipment and so forth and so on, then I stand ready to volunteer. There's never a charge for my services. I'm paid by the insurance companies. So what I do is when one has read my book and one has decided on how to proceed, I tell people what these additional coverages would cost them and offer them the opportunity to choose between the expensive ones and the less expensive ones. And uh, eventually I do the paperwork for them and I use my the authority granted by my insurance lesson to wrap everything up and it becomes a very painless uh, process. Everybody that I have spoken to after the fact has always said, thank you for making it a painless process. And that's what I enjoy doing. And I would like to do that for you. So anyway, go to amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com search for Medicare for the Lazy Man 2023. You'll find several different types of books. You'll find a an audible book. You'll find a an e-book that would be a Kindle version. 
very inexpensive. You'll find a paperback, which seems to be the most popular, and you'll find a magnificently created hardcover book with colorful illustrations, and you will be in possession of all the Medicare knowledge that anybody's ever going to need. So after having done that, I'll look forward to hearing from you. My email address will be right in the book for you to uh, contact me. And in fact, if you miss that, then Randy's going to mention it at the end of this episode. Aren't you, Randy? I hope anyway. That's your modus operandi. I am. I am. I always do that because people like to write you and you like to get communications. I, you know, once again, I occasionally find you with this hangdog look on your face standing down by your post, you know, your post box and there's nothing there. That's right. But then the next day I'm rewarded for my patience by uh, yes. having a bunch of mail come in. Hey, you know, you're sitting in the wide open spaces. I mentioned to you that uh, it looks like you're in Monument Valley today. I am. One of my, probably my all time favorite movie was the searchers by John Wayne. And mm-hmm. It, you know, I was a kid. I never questioned the fact that they were supposed to be in Comanche country in West Texas, but yet it looked like Monument Valley. Uh, I, it never occurred to me that John Ford was lying to the American public about <laughs> <laughs> the geography. Well, as you know, they uh, you can probably find a hundred different films that have various scenes in it taken in Monument Valley. And, and several years ago, uh, a good friend of mine and his father-in-law and I went up uh, went up to Monument Valley and stayed, you know, in a oh, I forget the name of the town we were at, but anyway, we were we were close by and we stayed there and uh, we got the highlight of the whole trip was that we uh, we hired a guide, a Native American guide, and he was able to take us in a jeep and because he was native uh, Native American, he could take us in his Jeep places that other people weren't allowed to go. Uh-huh. So we, we got to see some really, really backcountry cool stuff. And uh, I'll never forget it. But, you know, the other thing is yeah, I'm looking at this uh, this particular scene, as you know, is called The Mittens. Mm-hmm. And I had seen The Mittens on several TV shows my entire life, but I had no idea where they were, what they were. And I was just enthralled that they were real, and I was looking at them. And you know, did you live in Arizona at that time, or I mean, uh, when you, we went up when we went up there? Yes. Yeah. So we live actually within a half a day's drive of the mittens and other, yeah. like the Painted Desert, uh, right. Meteor Meteor Crater. There's all kinds of cool stuff around here. Um, yep. yep. Often yep. it's like living in New York. Uh, you could live in New York for your whole lifetime and keep telling yourself, ah. There's the Statue of Liberty. I'll go see that sometime. I can go anytime <laughs> I want, and you wind up never doing it. Well, you're you're absolutely right because you know my wife and I were talking over the weekend. We we did a little trip with our grandkids, and we just got to talking on the way back. You know, there's a thousand things in this state that is so diverse that that we haven't seen that we should see. We really need to make a list and and get after it because there's no reason not to. Well, you've excitedly uh, told me about your latest travel plans, and I think that's just fantastic. Tell the listening audience, the Medicare-hungry audience, uh, something that isn't involving Medicare. Tell them about your travel plan. I have never had what I consider to be a good old-fashioned train ride. So we are planning 
it's going to take a while, a little bit of research and, you know, a lot of planning, but we're going to do a, a West Coast to East Coast uh, train ride. And we hope to do it in the, you know, probably next year, early sometime. And I want to do it upright. I don't want to be back in the mail car. I want to be up front where I can sit up in the observation deck with my, oh, my alcoholic beverage, let's say. <laughs> well, let me let me correct a little bit of your nomenclature. You want to be in the back of the train. You don't want to be up front where the engine is. Oh, oh that's where that's where the observation yeah, car is. That's in the back. Yeah. Your best traveling experience on a uh, a traditional train was going to be towards the rear of the train. Okay. See, I've never had one. So I'm, oh, I, this is all, this is all news for me. In uh, Canada, I think they specialize in a uh, really uh, glorified coast to coast train ride from the Canadian national railway or something, but mm-hmm. you're going to be, you're going to be in the States. Uh, Amtrak is going to be your best bet, your only bet, I guess. And so I would suggest that you do some research to make sure that whatever train you pick has the old, um, the old Pullman equipment, uh, the Pullman sleeping cars and the Pullman dining cars and the Pullman observation cars. And those things should last forever. They were made out of stainless steel. Passenger railroading changed for the better in the 1920s when stainless steel was invented. Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, the interiors of these cars, instead of being wood with uh, porcelain uh, fixtures in the bathrooms and stuff like that, stainless steel became everywhere uh, the uh, interior of choice in railroad cars. And it's what I uh, really, uh, I remember most fondly uh, as yeah. a kid, youngster walking around. Everything was stainless steel. It was fantastic. It's, it's yeah. like, it reminds me of a 50s diner. You know, everything is Absolutely. stainless steel, right? Yep. You're going to have fun, too. I'm sure of it. So that's my plan. I'm I'm looking forward to it, and I will probably be using you as a reference, uh, you know, a reference material. What do you think about this, Doug? <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy to share my opinions. <laughs> because so, I don't know a thing about it. The last time I went, the only time I went on a train ride was from Omaha to Colorado. Yeah, And uh, we went through, because obviously we're going through the Rockies, there's several tunnels you have to go through. Right. And they and they weren't kidding when they said, don't open the doors when we're going through the tunnels. Uh-huh. And I go, and I looked at Margaret, I go, why is that? Because somebody did, and I found out that all that diesel comes in, you know, while you're in the tunnel, and then you can't breathe for the next four days. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, best that you keep the train sealed up so that uh, uh, it's the air coming in is filtered. Well, yeah, you, yeah. you're going to have a lot of fun, and I can't wait to hear. I want to travel with you vicariously. So I, I totally will make that happen. Excellent, excellent. By the way, do you have any Medicare questions for me? Do oh, we have any left in our? Oh, yes, I do. Cool. So I believe if my memory serves me correctly, we stopped with a question last uh, podcast that says, Am I required to enroll in Medicare? And I think the equivoc- unequivocal answer was no. That's right. You're you don't re- have to. You don't have to. Yeah. So we're going to go on with question number 22. Are you ready, Doug? I'm ready. Lay it on me. Will, here it comes. Will Medicare cover all my medical bills? Uh, this sounds familiar. Are you sure we didn't have this last time? Uh, all right, I'm we're going to move on to the next. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, no, it won't cover all your medical bills. It'll cover a large part of the bills that you incur for medically necessary 
services and treatment. Okay. That, you're right. I do remember that now. I, I had a long weekend with my grandkids. Yeah. Um, oh boy. So anyway, the next one is, can I change my Medicare Part D plan? You can change that, and you can change that every year from October 15th until December 7th. You can select a new plan. You can select 25 new plans during that period of time, and your last selection will become the one that you start with on January 1st. When you wake up in the morning after New Year's Eve, then uh, the last plan that you selected will be the plan that you have in store for you for the um, the following year. <clears throat> and that's the way it works. So uh, the nice thing is that those plans um, will become uh, a, the plan you've bought the year before may not be the best plan for you at, by the end of the year because your drug needs might change or the plan may have a different deal going with your local drug store and, and all of a sudden your drugs have higher co-pays. Any number of things can happen to make your search for a new plan a good idea. And so you can enroll in your new plan uh, in the fall, <clears throat> anytime after October 15th. You are absolutely correct, sir. Oh, boy. I, I was sweating that one out. So how many more questions do we have before we run out of questions? That was number 23. And in this particular list, I have two more to go. Okay. We have 25 questions. I think at one point in time, I I thought mistakenly so that there was 50 questions on this list, yeah. but there aren't. Well, you, you lost the list, and I think I might have been responsible for that misapprehension. Oh, yeah, there are 50 questions. You got to find them. <laughs> well, here's All what right. I'm thinking. I, you tell me if you think this is a good idea. I think those questions uh, brought out a lot of Medicare knowledge in pieces. Maybe we should have one episode where we just go through all 25 questions again, and anybody who wants to get their Medicare knowledge from a question and answer session might enjoy that episode. I don't know. What do you think? Well, we could do that. Or another option would be I could uh, pull up my magical random number generator, and we could just pull out a couple questions each week to recover to cover again if they happen to miss them because you know we we tend to at least i do we tend to think we've got a you know a, an audience that stays static and and there's a lot of people that do stay with us but we've got people coming and going you know every Absolutely. every podcast every podcast we sure do uh in fact i was asked by steve gibbons he had a uh, question. Let me launch into the uh, Medicare content for this episode. Steve Gibbons asked me a question, um, and he's been uh, one of our correspondents that has been a loyal listener for a long time. And his question was, hey, Mr. Smarty Pants, if you're so darn uh, successful, you've got property in Arizona and Illinois, why are you sitting in Arizona in the middle of summer, you dope? <laughs> And so I found myself having to explain my Illinois real estate problems to uh, Steve Gibbons. And uh, the the problem I have is that the house that I purchased in Illinois two and a half years ago is still not legally habitable. It looks beautiful. It's pretty much done, except for the fact that the place I bought it in is such a snooty place that the uh, the building inspector and the uh, zoning people are just impossible to deal with. 
And so I have spent more money on this house than I'll ever be able to sell it for. I'm just trapped like a rat, kind of like a roach motel. Uh, you know, I, I'm hoping to move in, but I'll never be able to move out because I won't be able to sell it for anywhere near the money I poured into this. This uh, I Oh, I have several adjectives, but I'm going to keep it clean for today, and I'm not going to use any of those adjectives. Um, oh, boy, I skipped our CDC English lesson for today. The CDC is trying to change how we deal with the English language, and they're very woke. And they have a bunch of people. The CDC is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But for some reason, some of their employees aren't busy controlling and preventing disease. They're telling the rest of us what our uh, language should be. And so uh, I don't like that. So I'd like to share what they're telling us to do, because this is how some of our tax money is being spent. And in this case, it's the category of healthcare access plus access to services and resources. That's the category we're in. And it says, here's what you shouldn't say when you're talking about people. You should not say the uninsured. Apparently that hurts their feelings. You should not say hard to reach populations, which I guess is people in the ghetto. And you should not say underserved people or communities or the underserved. You shouldn't say any of that. Apparently it hurts their feelings. Instead, these people at the CDC who spend their time trying to restructure the English language have ordered us to say people who are underserved, and you have to specify the service or resource, uh, resource um, people who are underserved by mental health or behavioral health resources, people who are medically underserved, people who are uninsured, or people who are underinsured, or people who do not have health insurance. And then there's a note here. The underserved refers to limited access to services that are accessible, acceptable, and affordable, including health care. Do not use underserved when you really mean disproportionately affected. So I'm hoping you remember that, Randy. You've got to be careful when you use the word underserved which I thought was one of their woke terms. Now they're telling us not to use it. I'm I'm writing all those down, Doug. Yeah, I can see that you're taking careful notes. I'm taking careful notes, and boy, I tell you, I certainly wouldn't want to misspeak when I'm doing my CDC lingo. Yes, and uh, if the CDC ever catches any of us uh, using the English language in a way that they don't approve of, then we're all going to be in trouble. We're all going to be in trouble. Uh, You know, as long as I'm talking about irritating things, Randy and I are both smokers. Now, we haven't smoked in years, either of us, but we are still in the um, group of people that that remembers smoking fondly and would like to think that someday we could resume smoking without any negative effects. And what happened? I watched this go on in the 1990s, and uh, I was horrified, but there was nothing I could do about it. And because smokers were a minority in the in the country, um, people were powerless to stop the trial attorneys from grasping huge quantities of money in their class action settlements against the tobacco companies. And to tell you the truth, the tobacco companies stopped trying to defend themselves because they realized that they could recoup the money that had to be paid to the lawyers by just raising the price of their product. So nowadays, 
It's hugely expensive to smoke cigarettes, but a lot of that money goes to lawyers and their little pet projects. So knowing that that is the history of the legal system in this country where lawyers get together and if they can successfully prosecute a class action uh, suit, they're going to be rolling in dough for the rest of their lives. They're going to be able to write books for their colleagues about how hugely successful and how brilliant they are to create this class action um, gold mine that uh, they fell into. Well, now it's happening with opioid settlement cash. I didn't know there were opioid class action suits, but uh, the headline on this article is repeating history. A California County plugs a budget gap with opioid settlement cash. Over the past two years, a state attorney general's a state's attorneys general agreed to more than fifty billion dollars in legal settlements with companies that made or sold op- opioids. They vowed the money would be spent on addiction treatment and prevention. That's what these lawyers in the smoking suits also said. We're going to help people kick the habit. That's what all the money is going to be used for. We're going to treat people that were, uh, you know, given. Uh, illnesses by smoking, and we're going to help smokers um, leave their habit behind them. It's going to be expensive. That's why we need billions of dollars. Well, that's what they said in the 90s, and these lawyers with the class action opioid suits are now collecting huge amounts of money, doling it out to government entities who are then turning around and spending it on uh, things that don't have anything to do with opioid treatment. Um, So, the uh, attorneys general who ran these uh, class action suits were determined to avoid the misdirection of the tobacco settlement of the 1990s in which billions of dollars from cigarette companies went to plug the budget gaps instead of funding programs to stop or prevent smoking. So their budgets, the governmental units, budget gaps, which they create by spending more money than they have, are being filled by lawsuit proceeds. In at least one California county, history is repeating itself, and across the country, many local leaders are finding themselves in similar positions, choosing between paying bills due today or investing in the fight against the opioid crisis. This is Mendocino County in rural Northern California. They've reported the highest rate of overdose deaths in the state, Its Board of Supervisors decided to use more than $63,000 of opioid settlement funds. This is about 6.5% of all the settlement cash the county has received uh, in the first two years of distribution. They're going to use that money to help fill a budget shortfall of about $6 million. Specifically, the money has been allotted to cover employee health insurance premiums, wage increases, and cost of living adjustments. County officials plan to use that amount as a recurring source of payment since opioid settlements are scheduled to arrive annually until 2038. Well, this this article is many pages long. I'm not going to plow through the rest of it because it's very irritating that uh, the uh, attorneys general, who in some cases are elected officials, can figure out private companies to sue and then use that money for their governmental overruns and uh they all of a sudden they're just basically uh encouraging these uh local governments to uh, spend more money than they have because the rain the money will fall like rain out of the sky if they uh 
if they, in fact, can get their grubby mitts on some of it. So changing direction. Um, here's a little article. I, I should mention that the content curator has uh, curated herself off to Texas for a few days, and therefore the curation was a little on the haphazard and and rushed side. So I'm working uh, without any real supervision here. If I uh, wander off the reservation, I'm hoping Randy will drag me back and, and point me in the right direction. But uh, this little article says, as fewer doctors practice rural primary care, a different type of doctor helps take up the slack. And this the uh, dateline here is Winterset, Iowa. For 35 years, this town's residents have brought all manner of illnesses, aches, and worries to a particular doctor's storefront clinic on the courthouse square, and he loves them for it. Dr. Regnier is an osteopathic physician. Oh, geez, osteopath. I think that's like uh, witch doctors. Anyway, he chose to run a family practice in a small community. Many of his Patients have been with him for years. Many have chronic health problems such as diabetes, high blood pressure, or mental health struggles, which he helps manage before they come become critical. I just decided I'd rather prevent fires than to put them out, he said, between appointments on a recent afternoon. Broad swaths of rural America don't have enough primary care physicians, partly because many medical doctors prefer to work in highly paid specialty positions in cities. In many small towns, osteopathic doctors like D. Like, uh, Regneri are helping to fill the gap. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm going to just call him doctor. So osteopathic physicians, commonly known as DOs, go to separate medical schools from medical doctors known as MDs. Their courses include lessons on how to physically manipulate the body to ease discomfort, but their training is otherwise comparable, leaders in both wings of the profession say. I'm not convinced that that's true. I think they're more like chiropractors than they are like regular doctors. But anyway, the article goes on to say both types of doctors are licensed to practice the full range of medicine, and many patients would find little difference between them aside from the initials listed after their names. Uh, DOs, doctors of osteopathy, are still a minority among U.S. physicians, but their ranks are growing. Uh, From 1990 to uh, 2022, their numbers more than quadrupled from fewer than 25,000 to over 110,000. Over half of them work in primary care, which includes family medicine, internal medicine, and pediatrics. U.S. News & World Report ranks medical schools based on the percentage of graduates working in rural areas. Osteopathic schools hold three of the top four spots when you measure doctors' uh, uh, activities in that method, in that way. Their training is now widely considered comparable whereas it didn't used to be. I'm of the old school. I don't consider that to be equivalent to a medical doctor. But anyway, um, students from both kinds of medical schools compete for slots in the same residency programs. Um, the very nature of osteopathic training represents or emphasizes primary care. Uh, this person said he would be confident in the care provided by both types of doctors. I would be equally willing to see either as my own primary care physician. The analysis uh, found that from 2008 to 2022, the number of Iowa doctors based outside the state's 11 most urban counties dropped more than 19%. Over the same period, the number of DOs based 
outside those urban areas increased by 29%. So the whole thrust of this article is that doctors of osteopathy are taking over primary care medicine in rural areas of the United States, and they are uh, apparently becoming more numerous. I don't know why. I, I suspect there's some difference in their training that makes it easier to become an osteopath, but I don't know that for sure. I just don't have any particular training in this area, but I will say that the article says that their uh, medical training is fairly equivalent, and you shouldn't be worried if your primary care physician turns out to be an osteopath instead of a regular MD. So uh, if you live out in the middle of nowhere, you may not have a choice anyway. So uh, I would say don't rock the boat. Just uh, uh, go with the flow until you have a reason not to. And I bet you right now, Randy, that we are sneaking up on the the cricket chirping time. Or have we actually crossed that it, line? The crickets have already spoken. So that's uh, good to know. We have just uh, used our 75 cents. And I was, you know, maybe next year we're going to be able to, you know, go for a buck worth of time. But right now we're going to try to hold it down to 75 cents because that seems to work pretty well. But well, yeah, I got to buy somebody's got to buy fuel for the airplane. Well, that's the, true. The Medicare for the lazy man corporate jet doesn't run on, uh, you know, fumes. It it runs on very expensive jet fuel. Well, that and the, the yacht. Oh, the yacht let's not even talk little, about that. That that uses a little bit of, uh, well, probably diesel. But uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I wouldn't want to see a plane flying. Well, you know, obviously planes could fly on diesel maybe, but a, a very refined version of it. So anyway, I think we need to close up shop. But before I do, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that I would be identifying your email address, which yes, I will sir. be doing. And anybody that would have a pencil handy, you can scratch down dbj at mlmmailbag.com. Doug loves getting emails from you. As I mentioned earlier, he's he's just a sad sack when he gets no email for the day. And he's he's just depressed for the whole week. So, you know, help me out here because we need some mail coming in. The other thing I always like to mention is Doug is licensed nationwide to help you with your Medicare supplement planning. You can check us out on MedicareForTheLazyMan.com. We would also very much appreciate you taking the time to find a way to give us a review on the podcast and the book because it does help us in the ratings. And in this world, it's all about ratings. And ultimately, the most important thing that I I certainly don't want to leave, uh, you know, the last, but it's certainly the most important, last but not least, is thank you. Thank you for joining us. You could have been many different places doing many different things, and you weren't. You were with us spending a little bit of time with the Medicare for the Lazy Man podcast. But in case you weren't keeping track, you have just spent about 32 and a half minutes with Doug Jones, the anti-insurance insurance guy from Oklahoma, no more living up in the high altitudes behind Cave Creek, Arizona, in his Fortress of Solitude. And I think today we're going to give him a break and put him down below 10,000. So let's put him in at about 9,300. I'm liking that, Randy. And I'm liking the audience. So please come back and join us for our next episode. We'll look forward to that. Bye-bye. <laughs>